In my last talk, I began a series on the three characteristics. And I'd like to elaborate a little bit tonight on the three characteristics um, before I speak about the next characteristic, that of dukkha. I want to do so because they really have such a uh, profound relevance to the work that we're doing here. I think I, like many people, um, have had a spiritual journey that's not just been a linear path, meaning that it's not that I first started doing this form of practice, stayed with it uh, through my life, but have found that there's been a number of different practices that I have done. And yet, when I started doing Vipassana meditation, insight meditation, I had such a strong sense of coming home. Even though this practice hit upon many of my beliefs, even though this practice tends to, in moments, really shake me up, it still had a, and still has a strong resonance of truth with it. And when I really started doing, taking this practice to heart, it was after having done many years of other practices. And there had been a time in my life deeply devoted to awakening, but had um, found that I could get into profound states of bliss, peace, tranquility, and yet still there was uh, times when it was just like I would come crashing down. The world would suddenly become very uh, hard, um, painful, and, you know, I just kept wondering what this was about. You know, sometimes just this feeling of soaring and then crashing down. And then one day I heard this thought that said, hmm, not a lot of wisdom here. And it was not long after this experience that I did find myself turning to Vipassana meditation. And I didn't know then what I know now, that this is actually a practice of wisdom, a practice that really cultivates clear seeing. And that was what I had felt so lacking in my other practices that there was this piece of wisdom that was missing. Even then, when I began doing uh, Vipassana insight practice, pretty much as we teach it here, um, I took it on in a way that, you know, I didn't want to do anything that wasn't going to be relevant to the alleviation of distress in my life. And so, you know, I really had an agenda. I wanted it to be something that in the midst of my daily life was going to help me. And I found this practice to be true to that. It lived up to um, that criteria. That it was a, and is a practice that helps me in the midst of distress in my life. And it's able to do so because it is about wisdom. It is about 
understanding that helps to dispel all of the confusion that we get caught in, all of the habits that we have that are so um, so perpetuating of states of not seeing clearly. This practice helps us to be able to have the support in the mind, helps us to penetrate experience so that we're not just caught on a superficial level of understanding, but helps us to really penetrate into the depths of experience to see clearly. And it's when the mind is able to penetrate that we see these three characteristics of experience. We see into the transitory nature of all experiences. We see how all of these different experiences are unsatisfactory due to this transitory nature and that they are all insubstantial. So even though we may come to practice through wanting to experience more peace and tranquility in our lives, this is not the full potential of the practice, to be able to abide in peaceful states, to be able to experience moments of tranquility when we don't feel so battered about by life. These are wonderful experiences that we may encounter along the way, but they are not the full potential. The full potential of the practice will really help us to uproot the habituated tendencies of greed, hatred, and delusion, and in the seeing clearly, the mind becomes freed, becomes peaceful, at ease, with all of the appearances of life, with all of life's forces moving through us. This wisdom that I speak of comes about when we connect with our experience directly and immediately. This happens when mindfulness is strong, when we can let experience be just as it is, without needing to change it in any way, without needing to analyze it, without needing to manipulate it. But we can open to any experience that arises in this mind and this body and be present with it. Allow it. Embrace it. Not chasing after it and not identifying with it as belonging to us, as being I, me, or mine. In doing so, 
there's a great spaciousness in the mind. Dispels the the, um, delusion. And this is when we experience insight. The insight that lights up experience. The insight that reveals these three characteristics. Anicca, impermanence. Dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature of experience. And anatta, the impersonal or not-self aspect of a rising experience. And these three characteristics being the gateway to liberation. And we can begin to pay attention to these characteristics as they reveal themselves moment after moment in our practice. As we see these characteristics, they help to decondition the mind. They help us to, in the scene of them, to learn to live in a wise way that is not at odds with the way things are. And it's because the seeing of these three characteristics helps to support us in letting go of all that is false, all that is illusory. It is because they help us in this letting go that they are called the gateways to liberation. So last week, I was speaking about impermanence, the changing nature of experience. A simple fact of life, and yet the understanding of which can totally transform our lives and the way we live them. When impermanence is deeply understood, we see the futility of trying to hang on to anything, of trying to make permanent that which by its very nature is impermanent. We cease to try to do that which is impossible. The understanding of impermanence will very naturally lead us into the next of the characteristics, that of dukkha, or the unsatisfactory nature of experience because of its transitoriness. We find that dukkha is often translated as suffering, which indeed suffering is a part of. But when we hear it translated in this way, this is where uh, the Buddhist teachings often get a bad rap, where they often are heard in a way that makes them seem pessimistic. You can um, sometimes misinterpret this when we hear uh, the translation of a statement that the Buddha made about, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. 
If we don't have a full understanding of this statement, it starts to sound very pessimistic. And, you know, I know for myself, when I first came to hear the teachings of the Buddha, hear a Dharma talk, and I would hear this word suffering over and over again, I remember going home and saying to somebody, wow, Buddhists really have a thing about suffering. Um, and then, you know, I'd go back to a retreat and I'd hear it again, hear suffering, suffering, suffering. And I'd think, oh yeah, here they go again. <laughs> and then when I was actually practicing and began to encounter suffering, I thought it was because of the practice. I started to blame the form. I thought maybe that this wasn't the right practice for me. And then I found myself in even deeper suffering. And then slowly it dawned on me that what I was experiencing was a magnified version of how I experienced my life, how I was so often run by desire and aversion and thus caught in suffering, how I interpreted so much of my life through beliefs, concepts, ideas I had, and that this too kept me caught in suffering. And at this point, I started to become very interested in my own suffering. Going back to this statement of the Buddha, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. There's two parts of this statement that I'd like to speak about. One is that if we just commonly um, look to the common understanding of the word suffering, this will be a very limited statement in which we won't understand the depths of what the Buddha was talking about. And I'll come back to this point in just a moment. But the other piece is to... um, just remind us of the need to keep in touch with the full vision of this statement. Needing to keep in touch with both the fact that the the Buddha is speaking to the truth of suffering, but that he is also speaking to the aspect of there being an end of suffering. There is suffering, and there is a way out of suffering. This is what the Buddha taught. So not to get caught in a pessimistic view and think that there is only suffering, because he never said this. And this is what people often hear. It is more that he was speaking in a very realistic way that pointed to, yes, there is suffering. We don't need to deny it. And there is a way out of suffering. There is an ending of the suffering. Pointing to an ultimate message of true happiness.
And so now I'd like to um, expand this teaching to beyond, to be beyond just our common uh, understanding of suffering. So the word in Pali that the Buddha used was dukkha. And it is very hard to translate it into the English language because it, uh, you know, the common translation is suffering, and that is limited. That is something that if we hear that the Buddha uh, was speaking of suffering, we, we might think in our own lives, well, you know, I don't experience strong suffering. I'm not living in deep poverty. I'm not subject to a lot of abuse in my life. And then may think that this teaching doesn't have much relevance to the predicament we find ourselves in. Stress is another way that this word gets translated. And right now we live in quite a stressful society, um, so it might be something that is a bit more relatable to. But at the same time, the word dukkha goes beyond just what we uh, experience in times when life isn't going uh, in an easy way. When we speak about dukkha as being the unsatisfactory nature of experience, an unsatisfactoriness that is inherent in experience because um, conditions are always changing, this unsatisfactoriness probably is more embracing, but is not a way that our culture is used to looking at experience. You know, to, to recognize things as being unsatisfactory in their very nature. The Pali word um, from, of dukkha is actually made up of two words. The first being du, which means bad, low, difficult, or vulgar. And ka, which means empty or hollow. Could be likened to the axle hole of a wheel. Could be looked at as the image of an axle not fitting properly into its hole. You know, there's just something that doesn't quite fit. And this is unsatisfactory. It's suggestive of a feeling of disharmony, friction, tension. Another definition of dukkha is that which is hard to bear or incapable of satisfying. Another way of saying it is that which is bad because it is empty, unsubstantial, unsatisfactory, or illusory. You know, and sometimes rather than just settling on one of these descriptions, 
we can in some way hold them all, they point towards this unsatisfactory nature. Also in helping to understand the broadness of the word dukkha, I'd like to speak about three different types of dukkha that are spoken of. The first is that of unpleasant sensations of body and mind. And this might be what we commonly call suffering. You know, when we sit here and we might be experiencing rage, anger, loneliness, um, despair, grief, we can easily see this as suffering, see it as dukkha. When we experience unpleasant body sensations, when there's you know, strong sensations of stabbing, heat, prickling, itching, this too can be readily recognized as a type of dukkha or suffering. The second type of dukkha is that which is due to impermanence, due to the fact that things are constantly changing and, as a result, not being able to find happiness. This is where um, we see that experiences in themselves are unreliable, subject to change. This in itself doesn't sound like so much. But when we look at it more deeply, it helps us to see why it is that things that we experience as happiness are not really reliable. It helps us to see that, um, you know, a state of deep calm, peace, that we experience due to a concentrated mind is not such a reliable state of happiness, that it too is subject to change as conditions change, and therefore not a place of finding lasting happiness. Sometimes when we experience happiness, it's harder to see that this is suffering when we just look at it on the level of uh, a superficial level. You know, in a moment where a child is born, people will so often delight, be happy about this, and forget that this child, too, will be subject to growing old, sickness, aging, death. And that this is all due to the changing nature of experience. Ajahn Chah once said, conditions all go their own natural way. Whether we laugh or cry over them, they just go their own way. And there is no knowledge or science that can prevent the natural course of things. You can get a dentist to look at your teeth, but even if he can fix them, still they go, finally go their natural way. Eventually, even the dentist has the same problem. Everything falls apart in the end. 
even our conditioned states of happiness fall apart in the end. And this is just a form of dukkha. It's not a personal failing. Remembering the moments of great joy in our lives are all subject to this impermanence. Nyanaponika Tara, a German-born Theravadan uh, monk, says, the axe of impermanence is always there to fell the tree of joy. But remember not to hold this in a pessimistic way. As I um, speak later on in the talk, that our practice is to help us understand this truth so that we aren't trying to work and live in defiance of this truth. The third form of dukkha refers to the suffering that is inherent in formations and the oppressive nature of these formations because of their continual arising and passing away. This points to the dis-ease, the unrest, or the instability that we so often experience because of this relentless arising and passing away of experience. And this doesn't matter whether experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's a ceaseless arising and passing away that, you know, has this um, relentlessness to it. It leaves us with nothing to hang on to, no security, very vulnerable. We see how out of control everything is. This aspect of continual change can be so tiring. And we can see it in different ways in our life. In a very general way, in our lives, we experience it in our daily lives with just what we have to do every day because we have a mind and a body. And we wake up in the morning, we get up, we have to tend to the bodily needs. We have to feed the body, we have to brush the teeth, we have to go to the bathroom. Um, we have to take care of this body, which means in this world that we need money to do so. We have to go out, we have to drive to work, walk to work, uh, we have to get there. And before we do that, we have to put clothes on the body because this culture doesn't like it if we turn up naked. You know, and we have to pay for these clothes. Um, then we work all day. Sometimes we love our work. Sometimes it's just to help us survive, just to help us do this day after day after day. We come home at the end of the day, we're exhausted, we're tired, so we have to feed the body again. If we're smart enough, we'll sit, we'll relax, we'll uh, find more peace within this. If we get sick, there's other aspects that we have to tend to. 
We have to you know, take vitamins. We have to take medication. We have to see a doctor. We have to drive to the doctor. You know, um, it's just an endless cycle of having to take care of this mind and this body. In our practice, sitting here, where we don't need to do so much, we can still feel how relentless this can be, how oppressive having this body can be. You know, we come and we sit down on our cushion. And maybe we come with great determination, great inspiration. And then, at some point, the body becomes painful. That um, there comes the feeling of the need to move this body. And maybe it's not even strong body or pain in the body. Maybe we just simply have to go to the toilet. You know, but this body constantly needing to move, to change. Many times we take this form of dukkha personally, thinking as we're sitting and this oppressive nature begins to become more apparent in our experience. We think, oh, if we were only a better meditator, we would be able to sit with more ease. We wouldn't have to get up. We wouldn't have to move. Or at times we might experience this oppressive nature uh, quite differently, in a really quite subtle way, where we find that we become so sensitive to the appearances that arise through any of the sense door that in a moment of seeing, it's as if there's a bombardment, an impingement. In a moment of hearing, it can be quite painful at times. In a moment of experiencing thinking, you know, boom, another thought. We feel impinged upon. And this is another way that we experience this type of dukkha. This type of dukkha can be quite evident at the end of a day when, you know, we get up, we're walking to bed, and, you know, sometimes just it's hard to hold ourselves back, hold ourselves in the present moment. It's just this feeling of it's enough, not wanting to be present. You know, it may be in the morning we're really ready to be with every arising appearance in the mind, And by the end of the day, there's been so many that we just want to turn the lights out and go to sleep. So looking at these three types of dukkha helps us to broaden the understanding of what dukkha is, to uh, helps us to see it in a way that may make it more relevant to our own experience. Because this is what's so important, that what we hear about, what we look into, is relevant to how it is that we get caught in our own experience. When we look into uh, our own experience, we might recognize that it was by... 
coming in contact with some aspect of dukkha that we actually began our spiritual journey. It may have been coming in contact with extreme suffering in our own lives, uh, you know, and, and it can, can sometimes be quite significant, quite seeable forms of suffering. Sometimes it may have been just in coming in contact with this relentlessness, this arising and passing away, this day-to-day living, and thinking there must be something more. And in those moments where we contacted dukkha, we contacted some form of suffering, rather than falling victim to that suffering, we sensed, as the Buddha did, some sense of possibility. And it said that the seeing of dukkha can really be the proximate cause for the arising of faith. That when we really let ourselves see this dukkha, let ourselves open to this dukkha, there is something in us that knows there is an end to this dukkha. Like impermanence, the teachings on dukkha hold a very relevant spot in Buddhist teachings, which means they hold a relevant place in the unraveling of our own distress. The teachings on dukkha are really the essential teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha spoke about the Four Noble Truths. These are the truths that the Buddha recognized on that evening when he realized the complete liberation of the heart. He named these Four Noble Truths of the truth of suffering, that there is suffering, the cause of suffering, the cause being craving, identification, clinging, the third noble truth being that there is an end to suffering, and the fourth noble truth being the way leading to the end of suffering. So the Buddha was not being pessimistic. What was he pointing to in saying there is a truth of suffering, there is suffering? He was simply saying that it's not easy to be a human being. 
and to have no illusion about life. That as a living being, human being, we will be faced with challenges from birth until death. That by simply having a body, having a mind, there are things that we will encounter that are difficult, unpleasant, but that we can, through wise attention, through looking to see how we relate to all of these experiences that are so at times terrifying, at times so grief-ridden. But by looking into how we relate, what is the cause of that which seems so unbearable, we can free this mind. So as a gateway to liberation, dukkha, seeing suffering, seeing the unsatisfactory nature of experience, calls us to look directly into the face of suffering. Instead of suppressing, denying, trying to pretend that things aren't at times unpleasant, that there isn't this state of tension that we so often live in, to really inquire what's happening here, experientially, to drop into the experience of dukkha. Not to perpetuate it, but to come to know it, to come to deeply understand it, Our culture is so geared towards the opposite of this, to deny suffering, to pretend it isn't there. I saw a trace of it in my mind on a very mundane level just recently. I was out in the world and I got out of my car and I looked down at the tire on my car and it looked like it was going flat. And the first thought was, I'll just pretend I didn't see it. You know, as, as if by pretending I didn't see it, it would go, go away, it wouldn't be there. And, you know, it just showed me how deep this conditioning goes. I mean, it's embarrassing, I know. But, you know, I think it says a lot. And it says what we so often try to do. And, you know, I even see it in sittings when I sit. And there's something unpleasant happening, I just want to pretend. I'll just try and focus on something that's really pleasant. So, you know, pretend it isn't there. And so, you know, just to know it's deeply habituated, deeply conditioned, and we don't get support for seeing it differently from the culture around us. You know, just looking at what we do, how we put the aging in homes, we cover over the dying process doesn't help us.
doesn't help us but to turn and to look, to not to be afraid. And this is what the Buddha was trying to give us the courage to do, not to be afraid and not to think it's just us, not to personalize it. And when we really understand the truth of suffering, this is what happens. It depersonalizes. This is just what is so. In a moment where it's fear, it's just fear. It's not fear because we're really a stupid person. It's just fear. It's just anger. It's just unpleasant experience. How much shame have we experienced when we experience suffering? No, this is where we're personalizing it, making our story about suffering. It also happens when we make our stories about suffering and we personalize them that we get familiar with these stories we get almost content within our suffering. It's a sick form of contentment, yes. But there's something that's known about it. And so we just stay in a place, in a relationship to that which is just unsatisfactory by its nature. But we don't let our level of understanding be such that it helps to free the mind. And thus we're trapped within the pain, the unpleasantness, the unsatisfactoriness. And this is all built up around this illusion of self. However we do it, whether it's through personalizing the experiences, telling a story about our suffering. You know, how many times do we sit in meditation and relive the memories of our past, the memories where we may have been a victim of suffering. And it may be that it was painful, unpleasant. But we build upon these unsatisfactory experiences. But the relationship changes when we can see it as being impersonal. When we take the I, the me, the mine out of our experience. Contemplation of suffering takes us face to face with the cause of suffering, 
that of, that of desire or craving. So as we look into suffering, this is what we come to see, that it's born out of craving, identification. You know, sometimes I think when we hear craving, that again suggests something too strong, because it may not be um, that what we're experiencing feels like so, so deeply hanging on to something, wanting something full of desire. But it's also when there's just a subtle sense of identification, where we have taken something to be I, me, or mine. Taken experience to be belonging to us. It's quite common in our practice that even though we hear of the truth of dukkha, the truth of the unsatisfactory nature of experience, um, we hear of it as a characteristic of experience. But when the mind really starts to pick up on this characteristic, it's very common that we will then still personalize it and think that we're doing something wrong. I remember a time in my own practice when the mind really started hitting upon dukkha. And I was practicing in Burma. And I just started to think that, you know, I became so dissatisfied with my practice, dissatisfied with life. Nothing seemed right. And I wrote a letter home to one of my Western teachers telling them of my experience telling them you know, just how unsatisfactory everything was. And they just wrote this letter, which unfortunately took a long time coming back to me, which just reminded me of this truth, this very truth of suffering. And how when we can see this suffering, see this unsatisfactory nature of experience, with equanimity, not moving into reactivity because of this, then it becomes a gateway to liberation. We'll find in our practice that there's times when the unsatisfactoriness is very strong, very blatant, you know, when it just is those uh, really dominant states of unpleasantness, anger, fear, distress, pain, um, or sometimes it will be experienced in much subtler forms, you know, just a slight uneasiness a slight contraction in the heart, very subtle forms of identification with any aspect of experience.
And just as we see this, not to personalize it, not to think we're doing anything wrong, but just to see it, just to, just to see how unsatisfactory experiences can be. To stay steady with it. And, you know, it doesn't mean that we won't experience the pain. Because, you know, when we come into the cause of suffering, being craving, when we experience craving, it, it can be searing. It can be so hot. But it's because we come in close contact with that craving and experience it fully, experience the heat of the mind of filled with craving, that letting go happens naturally. We don't need to be told what to do. We don't need further instruction at that point. When we can really let ourselves touch into the cause of suffering, it will lead us into the end of suffering very naturally. So, the second of the three characteristics, that of dukkha, suffering, unsatisfactory nature of experience, the scene of which can be a gateway to liberation, can lead to the deepest understanding that frees the heart and mind. Just the other night, I was watching the news and struck, as always, about the depths of suffering in the world. But also in that moment, remembered the work that we're doing here. And it struck me in that moment as being totally amazing that we have this opportunity to be working in the way of working with these roots of suffering. We have this opportunity here to not be caught up in such a state of distress that we can't even look to what's causing the distress, but look to what really is the root of suffering. It helped me in that moment to feel the potency, the potential of the work that we're doing here. And not to want to squander or make light of this opportunity. So many people don't have this same opportunity.
I'd like to close with a quote from Ajahn Buddhadasa. Do realize that this business of the path and the walking of it is no small matter, no joke. On the contrary, it is the most vital matter of all. It is the task for a human being. It is a job to be done with all the intelligence and ability a human being can muster. Don't waver for an instant, not for a split second. In a single instant one may go astray from the path. If the mind is not on the lookout at every moment, there is a danger of its running off the path and even falling into lower realms. If we, it behooves one, each of one of us to reflect on the dangers of this kind of lapse and resolve to maintain clear and unobscured insight into the transience, unsatisfactoriness, and non-selfhood of every single thing about oneself. If one's every action, every word and thought will then keep, we will then be keeping with that insight. If we bring these three characteristics so deeply into our experience, there is no way that one can lapse and give rise to some kind of suffering. These three characteristics are really a key, the seeing of them. And using this moment, this opportunity, this time of practice, to know it as deeply and intimately as we can. Because this is what will protect us from suffering. And this is what will help us to alleviate suffering in the world when we so deeply understand it in our own hearts and minds. We will be able to help others to understand it for themselves. So let's just sit for a moment.
may all beings come to know the end of dukkha. <laughs>